Amen. Thank you, Scott. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, is Matthew f- chapters 5 through 7. Uh, today we'll be in uh, verses 21 through 30, although I'm going to start uh, back in 17 uh, from last week because I, I want us to remember where uh, we just were and how it connects. Uh, also, parents, uh, just a warning, like the last third of the sermon gets a little PG-13. Um, I won't be graphic, but just you got about 20 minutes to figure out what you're going to do there. Um, so uh, so I'm going to start in verses 17 through 20 because not only does it uh, connect to, to the next three weeks of what we're doing, but really it's the, the whole sermon on the mount. Uh, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So over the next three weeks, we're going to go, uh, we're going to get into these six illustrations or examples that Jesus gives us so so that we can see what kind of righteousness, what this righteousness looks like, this whole person righteousness. Again, I uh, shared a definition last week that we'll put up on the screen right now from Jonathan uh, Pennington's uh, uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that righteousness, as defined in the book of Matthew, is this. It's whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. So we're going to talk about lust in the first example, or uh, sorry, anger in the first example, and then lust, uh, and, and we'll see how this, this whole person righteousness uh, is, is lived out, right? That's what we're looking at e- each week, the next three weeks. We're seeing this is what whole person righteousness uh, looks like. Um, the truth statement, again, Matt Q uh, helps with this. It's Jesus' true disciples must possess the whole person righteousness of the kingdom. Okay, that's what we're, we're talking about today as we look at these little vignettes. We're, we're, we're looking at, man, Jesus' true disciples, they have to possess this whole person righteousness that, that is of the kingdom. So we'll see this pattern over the next three weeks. Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, and then he'll say, but I say to you. So he's going to take us from this external righteousness to, uh, to the inner heart, this internal righteousness, right? It's this, this inside transformation that Jesus' followers have because they've been born again, right? This doesn't come from us just trying really better, right? This isn't Christian self-help. This is, no, Jesus transforms us. He, he transforms the believer so that the external and the internal are congruent, that it's this whole person that's offered to the Lord. So let's jump into our first one in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So as we just read in verse 17, Jesus isn't upping the ante on the law. He isn't opposing, he's interpreting, he's, he's, he's helping us see what was always intended by God. And I hope that, that today and the next couple of weeks that it becomes crystal clear to us how critical it is that God has our heart, that he has all of who we are, right? It, it's not just our actions that matter, not just good behavior, though what we do certainly matters, but it's our external behavior that, that comes out of a heart that, that longs to glorify God in his kingdom. That, that is this whole person, righteousness. It's what is inside our hearts coupled with how we live that points to our great God. So how we live testifies uh, to the story of God who himself so as the listeners heard Jesus say, uh, you have heard that it was said, uh, you shall not commit murder, you shall not murder. Undoubtedly, many of them, maybe every one of them thought, check, right? I've never murdered anyone. But then Jesus goes on, but I say to you. And you may remember that Matthew uh, sure seems to want us to make a connection with Jesus and Moses, that Jesus is the better Moses who's gone up the mountain, and he's the arbitrator of the law. He's their redeemer. He's the one that will not fail in leading God's people to the promised land so that they can be with their God. Jesus is giving them the law with true authority here. And with all six examples, he's going to get to what the command was always about. Right? It isn't just that we aren't supposed to murder. That's actually a pretty low bar. Um, I've had people over the years, as, as I've talked to people that don't trust Jesus, that, that don't believe we need a Savior, that don't believe that, that, that they're sinful, um, they flippantly said to me, well, I've never murdered anyone, right? As if that is the standard for being a good person. That's not whole person righteousness. Jesus, he says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Clearly the bar of what this whole person righteousness, this true righteousness is, it's higher than they thought. John says something similar in 1 John 3.15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Human life matters, and it's not just that we're not supposed to kill other people. It's even what's going on in our hearts. So it's what's going on through, through our, our words, our mouths, the other actions that we do as well. Now, obviously, yelling at someone 
or chewing someone out is not the same as murder. Jesus is not saying that here. But he is saying that there's much wider application than Christians shouldn't murder people. How we handle anger is critical. So is it a sin to be angry? No. Uh, We can pretty quickly in Scripture confirm that that it's not a sin to be angry. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Um, In Scripture, we see God get angry. He has a righteous anger. Uh, So our feeling of anger isn't, uh, our feeling of anger is, is actually a part of being made in the, the Imago Dei, the image of God. Um, there are things that we, we should be angry about, right? Misuses of power, um, abuse, uh, something that has just ticked me off. Like early in COVID was, uh, I mean, there's always been uh, scams targeting elderly people. But early in COVID, I kept seeing all these articles about that ramping up more and more. These things should make us angry. What, uh, what Jesus is getting after is, is what our heart does with anger. Feeling anger is not a sin, but it's, it's this unrighteous anger that Jesus is talking about. So maybe... Um, maybe you let your anger linger, right? Like maybe you get angry, you pull up a chair, and you want to hang out there for a while. You want to saturate in it. Maybe, uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe you, you, you get angry at someone, and, and you have this argument with, with uh, them, but it's all in your head, right? And you're just tearing them down verbally in your head. They're not even in the same building as you, or at least that's how it goes for me. Um, maybe, that, maybe that's not what it's like for you. Maybe, maybe right away you're ready to just verbally abuse them, just attack them up one side and down the other. Maybe, uh, maybe it goes beyond words for you. Maybe you get physical. We so often hang on to our anger. We go way beyond just the emotion of anger and, and this unrighteous anger seeps into our heart. And there, there have been plenty of studies uh, that show that, that people that are, are angry a lot, that they have shorter lifespans, that, that there's uh, leads to heart disease and all, all kinds of other complications. Anger, unrighteous anger, it can be poisonous to us. I heard a saying years ago, bitterness is the poison you drink thinking that it will kill the other person. None of us, I'm guessing, would say that we like anger, but sometimes our actions speak otherwise. It's stupid, but sometimes we live as if we want to stay angry at someone else, right? You, You choose to stay angry just a little bit longer. Totally unnecessary, but but you choose to remain angry with that other person. Jesus says the the person with unrighteous anger towards their brother is liable to judgment, right? He he just said murder is liable to judgment. Now he says the, the person that's angry with their brother is liable to judgment. He goes on to say if you insult your brother, you're liable to judgment. If you say you fool, you're liable to the hell of fire. When we go after someone, maybe it's attacking their intelligence, maybe it's attacking not just their intelligence, but their character, like the very core of of who we are. It's a much bigger deal than we think. And and Jesus is saying all these deserve divine judgment. 
And in all of this, Jesus is helping his people see that it isn't just outward righteousness that matters. Our hearts matter. Our words matter. Other, uh, other actions matter besides just not murdering someone. Our heart matters to God. Righteousness is your whole self in line with God's nature, will, and his coming kingdom. So yes, do not murder. That's good. But the real litmus test, as someone put it, is what, what happens in our hearts uh, along with our actions. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember, he, he gives this, this really helpful word picture. Now here you are at the altar. You're getting ready to offer your gift to the Lord, which is something that you've been commanded to do. This is a part of worshiping the Lord. And there, as you're about to offer your gift, you realize, man, there's, there's something between me and this brother, me and this sister. There's, there's, there's a brokenness relationally between us. Maybe you called them a fool. Maybe they called you a fool. Jesus says, in, instead of continuing on offering your gift, what you need to do is press pause on that. You need to go and, and find that brother, that sister, and make it right. You need to, you need to seek peace with them, to reconcile with them. Don't try to worship the Lord when you're not reconciled with someone. And they really shouldn't have been surprised to hear Jesus say this, because this is all throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to blitz through just a few verses where we see uh, something like this. First Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, "'Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord?' Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Psalm 51, 16, and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Uh, Isaiah 1, 11, and then 1, 13. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons, uh, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Last one, uh, Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the, the knowledge of God, right? knowing God rather than burnt offerings. This, this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is a righteousness that is whole person, wholehearted righteousness. It's this internal and external congruence of the believer. This person, all of who they are, is unto the Lord, and this is human flourishing. Last week, we talked about the law, and, and, and that we, we need to remember Torah, right? The, the story of God and his people. Whole person righteousness points to the story of God and his people. Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself, and when we're willing to reconcile with someone, right? Even when we have been wronged, like massively wronged, hurt and wounded. When we're willing to reconcile, we point to Jesus who laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. 
When we pursue forgiveness with a brother or sister in Christ, we're both reminded of, of the great lengths that Jesus went to to reconcile us to himself. Remember in, in the Beatitudes, back in verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then the very next one, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Obviously, you can try to make peace with someone, but there are some people who may refuse to be at peace with you. Uh, Christians uh, are meant to be peacemakers, but we will not be at peace with everyone. There will be people that hate us because of our love for Jesus. So does this mean then, because of this example, that we can't worship? Well, no, it can't. If that were true, then the further that Jesus got into his public ministry, he would not have been able to worship. Obviously, there were people that hated him so badly, they wanted him dead. But when it is possible, we are to be at peace. So do you have a problem with anger? And if you automatically think, no, I don't have any problem with anger, a better question might be, does someone else have a problem with your anger? Are you constructive in your anger or are you destructive? Righteous anger, what we see in God, it's, it's constructive. Unrighteous anger is destructive. Verse 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Do you delay reconciling? And I get it, right? There are times where, man, I'm so fired up. I need time to calm down so I do not make things worse. Um, But perhaps... Perhaps there are times when you just want the other person to feel that relational strain, so you hold off and reconcile. You want them to, to feel that brokenness and how, how, how terrible it is to not be reconciled with you. Do you initiate reconciliation? Or is it always on your friend or, or your family member to initiate reconciliation with you? Is your heart soft enough to seek out the other person or does pride get in your way? I think all of us need to ask, is there someone right now in our lives that we need to seek peace with, someone that we need to reconcile with this week or even today? All right, verse 27, the next section. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as, as they heard him say, you, you shall not commit adultery, I'm sure most of them, maybe all of them, thought, oh yeah, I've never done that. I've never engaged in, in sexual intimacy with someone who is not my spouse. But this is a really narrow definition of what is sexual sin and a broad definition of what is sexual purity. And, and Jesus keeps going, he goes, okay, great. What about your heart? And he says, but I say to you, and remember, with, with anger, having the emotion of anger, that, that, that's not the sin problem. You, you can feel angry, right? But it doesn't take long for that anger to become unrighteous anger. And similarly, it, it's not wrong to notice someone of the opposite sex is beautiful. Um, and, and what Jesus is saying here obviously applies to both sexes. You can notice someone's beauty, 
right? That's a part of how God has made us. But with what you do with that is critical. And, and we can turn uh, that, that noticing into sin really quickly. Right? God made us with desires. And these desires are good, healthy desires in the way that God has designed them, in the way that God has told us to live these out. Our culture has a, a very wide definition of what is sexually uh, acceptable. The sexual ethic of our age really is as long as there are two consenting adults, you're good to go. And, and that's not what God has told us. That's not what he has designed. He's made sexual intimacy for male and female in the covenant of marriage for their lives. And uh, I recognize that a lot of people in the room, uh, maybe you're not married. And, and you obviously have God-given desires. I don't want you to think that, that these desires that God gave you uh, are, are wrong. Um, I think I grew up kind of thinking that way in the church. I'm not saying it's, it's my church's fault or my parents' fault. I just had that thinking. Um, it's not wrong, these desires, but what we do with them uh, is, is where it turns to sin. Right? What's wrong is to desire what is not yours to desire, desiring what God has not given you. Right? It's, it's looking at this other person for your own gratification. So lustful intent, uh, and I, I ripped this off from someone else who ripped it off from someone else, so I don't feel bad. Uh, lustful intent is desiring what is not yours to desire. You, you, you go from, from seeing someone and thinking that looks nice, or, or they look nice, not that. They look nice to that would be nice. And we know how quickly this happens. Right? We, we see someone of the opposite sex that is attractive to us, but it doesn't take long for, for that noticing to, to turn to sin and take root into our heart. And, and it's this looking and, and desiring uh, someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. Jesus says when we do this, we've, we've already committed adultery with her in our hearts. And this is not a little thing. Right? By the world's standards, I'm not an adulterer. By Jesus' standards, I am. The world has no problem with this, right? With the, the, the culture of uh, sexual promiscuity, uh, the porn industry, the supposed intimacy with no strings attached. Uh, sexual intimacy is, has been cheapened by our world. I heard about an interview with uh, the actress Jennifer Lawrence several years ago. Uh, she was in a, a movie. She, had, she was already a movie star at this point. She was in a movie. I don't know which one it was. Um, and it was the first movie where, where she had to be in a, a sexually intimate scene. Uh, and she, uh, she said it was the most vulnerable she's ever felt in her life. And she called up her mom the day before in tears and said, Mom, just tell me it's gonna be okay. Tell me I'm gonna be okay. And then she showed up to the studio the next day and, and got drunk so that she could get through this scene. Right? Don't, don't tell me that sexual intimacy means nothing. Right? God has a, a very good design and our world is, has perverted that good design. So here, Jesus, he's connecting both the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and the tenth, which is about not coveting all kinds of things, right? Your neighbor's house, even your neighbor's wife. Well, why? Why, why does this matter? 
Uh, there are probably a lot of reasons that God gives, but one reason is looking lustfully at someone objectifies them. It dehumanizes this person who God has made in his image. You might remember if you were with us back when we were studying First and Second Samuel, David, he's up on the rooftop um, and he notices Bathsheba bathing and, and there's lustful intent there. Now what he should have done he, he, should have, he should have gone to like Nathan and said, Nathan, man, I was out on the roof. I, I noticed this, this, this woman and I, I, man, I stared. I was lusting after her. I just want to confess that to you, but that's not what he did. He, he, he went and he, he had someone go find out about her. And that person comes back and, and they, say, they say her name. They say that's Bathsheba, right? David, this is, this is a, a person and they say, Bathsheba's the wife of Uriah. Man, you know Uriah. Uriah's out there fighting your battle right now for your kingdom. He goes on to say that Bathsheba's dad is so-and-so. I don't remember the dad's name. Right? Bathsheba has grandparents. Bathsheba has aunts and uncles. Bathsheba has brothers and sisters. When we look at someone with lustful intent, whether it's in person or, or through a screen, we're objectifying them for ourselves. It's for our own gratification. Another reason that, that, that it's not good is, is that when we live this way, we're not rightly telling the story of God. We aren't reflecting who our God is. Our God is faithful. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom who has come for his bride. He sacrificed his very life to pursue his bride. There's nothing cheap about the price that Christ has paid. Our God is steadfast in his faithful love toward us when we're sexually unfaithful, right? Even if it's not in actions, even if it just stays in our head and our heart, when we do that, we don't rightly point to the story of our perfectly faithful God. When we see someone of the opposite sex and, and we're attracted to them and, and we have this lustful desire for them, when, when, we, when we think about them later or, or, or we click on that link or, or that video or, or, or maybe it's even just looking at someone else's relationship, someone else's marriage, or, or maybe it's not even that, maybe it's like a, a relationship and this moving and you just, you wish, you want that to be yours, you covet that. When we do this with our eyes and, and in our minds, Right? Even if it never goes anywhere, we aren't rightly telling the story of our God. Our lives are to tell the story of the pure and faithful love of the God that we worship. Jesus reminds us that, that God is, is after all of who we are, not just a part of us. So this includes even our sexuality. Our, our faithfulness sexually matters because, as, as one pastor put it, we are living lives that are to show God's glory and tell God's story. Verse 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The, the Puritan uh, John Owens he said uh, something like, be killing sin, lest it be killing you. Sin is serious, right? We need to take our battle with sin seriously. Now, uh, Jesus 
isn't saying that we literally maim ourselves. And there have been some uh, throughout Christian history that, that have, have been so frustrated in their battle with sin that they've taken Jesus' words literally. He's not calling us to actually tear out or cut off anything physically, but he does want us to take our battle with sin that seriously that we would take our self-denial that seriously. So, so he's saying, don't look. Don't even look as if your eye has been plucked out. There are movies and shows that, yeah, they're not, they're not pornography, but man, we shouldn't even watch them. And maybe there are actors or actresses that, that you realize that in your heart, in your mind, you've gone places you shouldn't. You should never watch them again as if your eye was gouged out and you weren't even capable. Maybe there are relationships at work that even though nothing has ever happened, maybe nothing ever would happen, but just the way you talk with them, the way you feel around them, the way they laugh at your jokes, maybe you need to cut that off. Or maybe there are certain websites that you just need to block on your computer or apps that you need to get rid of on your phone. Or maybe you just need to give control of your phone to someone else so that you can't even download an app without someone else knowing. And there are programs uh, like Covenant Eyes, like Triple X Church, uh, that, that maybe, maybe you need to look into installing those. It's better that you lose apps and websites. We need people in our lives that will ask us how we're doing in our sexual purity, people that will confess to you even if they don't ask us the right question. So do you have close brothers or sisters in Christ that, that will keep you accountable? Um, obviously, men with men, women with women there. Uh, and, and all these guardrails I just mentioned, right? Like they can be good and they can be helpful, but we can't forget that this is a heart issue, right? If you, if you plucked out your eyes, you would still have this imagination. You could still conjure up images that, that would be sinful. Jesus wants not just our actions, but he wants our hearts as well. Following Christ is, is it's our whole person. It, it's our entire heart following him. It's interesting, the word lust, I can only find two times in the Old Testament that it's speaking about sexual desire. Almost every other time, it's talking about Israel looking at the neighboring nations and wanting what they had, wanting the idols that they served, the gods that they had. They, they lusted after those. He said, you're, you're, you're adulterous in, in your hearts towards these other nations. They, they longed for what they had instead of remaining faithful to God, instead of trusting that God knows what is good for them and exactly when to give it to them. And we're just like Israel, right? We look at what others have, right? And maybe it's not even sexually. Maybe it's, maybe it's in marriage or a job or a house or a boat or, I don't know, how someone else's kids behave. Instead of trusting that God knows what is good for you and exactly when to give it to you. And this temptation has been there from the beginning to, to not trust that what God has given us, what God has said is good, is good. And, and it can be in all arenas in life, but we're constantly faced with the question, will we trust God in our present circumstances, right? Is our heart truly God's or will we desire what he has not given to us? And I think one way to fight the, the desires of what God has not given to us is thankfulness, to, to just be content 
for what we do have right now, what, what he has given to us, what he's provided for us, thanking him for that. Proverbs uh, chapter five tells uh, husbands, but it certainly applies to both sexes. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Right? Be content with your spouse, however many years you've been married. Right? He knew that your spouse would change in every way that he would change. He knew, he knows what is good for you. So Christians, are we satisfied with what God has given us? Or is our heart constantly looking elsewhere for satisfaction? Are our eyes constantly wandering and roaming? Jesus is the faithful bridegroom to the bride who's been unfaithful. Jesus has come and pursued you like no one ever could. He has given all of who he is to you, and he expects in return your whole self, your whole person, a wholehearted worshiper of the one true God. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you, Lord, and we acknowledge that on our own we have no chance at this, this righteousness that exceeds the, the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness. Jesus, we, we need you to transform us. God, we want not just our behavior to be right, but God, we want our hearts to be right, Lord. And God, I don't know how you've convicted people today, um, but Lord, if, Spirit, if there's something that you're nagging us with, convicting us of, would you continue to do that? Would you help us to come to a place of confessing to you and, and, and perhaps to a brother or sister in Christ as well? Jesus, I, I pray that, that our hearts would be yours, that we would be satisfied in you and you alone, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.